Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new to the church or just haven't been around the last couple weeks, I had surgery on my ankle, so it's not normal for me to sit down while I preach, but um, we're making do in the interim. Um, just a couple of things I want to mention tonight. The first one is that next Sunday there is a football game that happens in the evening. Um, you may be aware of it. It's kind of a cultural phenomenon. And so the Super Bowl is happening next Sunday, February 2nd, and we still worship together, <laughs> even though there's a football game. Our evening service ends at 6.30, and the kickoff won't be at least until 6.45 or 6.50. So if you're normally an evening service attender, we encourage you to either come in the morning or come at 5 p.m. and then plan to hang out with other folks for the game after the service ends. It is the Sunday every year that the evening service clears out the fastest, um, but I want to see the game too, so come and join us. We will worship together at 5. Um, so the, another thing that's on, just on my mind tonight, um, so before we get into the sermon, I'm not going to reshape what I'm preaching and where we're at, cause, but my phone was blowing up this afternoon, and we don't know many details, but most of you have probably seen that there was a helicopter crash in California, in the LA area, and that Kobe Bryant is, is, um, was thought to have been on it. Maybe there's all kinds of other news, so I'm not going to speculate because that's irresponsible. But um, it's devastating to see and be reminded of the short and fragile nature of life. And so um, I know that's on many of your minds tonight, and it would be irresponsible not to acknowledge it. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into the text that we have and, and continue on in the night. But even as we are singing tonight, that hymn that, that our band led us in so beautifully, um, it just as it begins, being able to cry out together. And this is the beauty of what we get to do and to be in the church, that we can come together and see how fragile life is and still say, in the hours of pain and sorrow, when the world brings no relief, when the eye is dim and heavy and the heart oppressed with grief, while blessings flee, the Savior, Lord, we trust in thee. And so let's pray, and then we will get into what we have in front of us for the night. Father, there, it's, it's, it's tough to live in a place that, that has the reality of wickedness and sin and death, and, and we know that, that you know that, and we know that we see the, the beautiful example that Jesus wept in the face of it, and so uh, it's confusing and it's hard to know how to navigate, and we pray that that tonight you would help us to see the beauty of who you are in your word. Even as we head into some, some topics that are difficult for us to walk through and difficult for us to understand, it's not difficult because your word is unclear for us. It's difficult because we're trying to navigate this life as finite beings. We need your help. And so we pray that you would meet us tonight, that by your spirit you would help us, that you would help us to be able to have joy and laughter in the face of sorrow, that you would help us to be able to see clearly with reality who you are, that you would, you would help us to trust that there is hope for us in Christ. And so we lift this time to you in his name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, we are in a study in the book of Romans, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Romans or turn there on your, on your phone. Um, we also have Romans scripture journals that are available. It's a great tool. I know a lot of you have picked them up already. They're available on the book table, um, so you can grab one now if you want to. I'm not going to be weird about you getting up. Um, and they're four bucks to suggest a donation. If you don't have that, that's fine. You can just take one. But in Romans, we're in chapter one, and we've seen, we're, this will be the third section that we study together. And we've seen so far an introduction into Romans that Paul is the apostle who wrote it. And so he introduced himself and immediately jumped into the good news that we call the gospel, that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the son of God in power, declared to be such by the Holy Spirit and raised from death to life. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus that we cling to as the center of the Christian faith. And then he told the people in Rome, he had never been there, but he had this longing and heart to encourage the people in Rome. And last week we saw his eagerness to preach the gospel in that capital city. And then he said that he was eager to preach the gospel. And there are four reasons that he gives. We covered the first three last week and we get into the fourth reason tonight. He said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, in verse 15 of chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then the fourth reason is for the wrath of God is being revealed. And so he introduces this section of the book of Romans um, that goes for the next couple of chapters, about that, but it begins by saying the wrath of God is being revealed, and this is why we so desperately need the good news of the gospel. Now, I know this is not the most comfortable topic for many of you and for many of us. Something we struggle with of how can a loving God be filled with wrath, and what does God's wrath mean, and how do we reconcile these things? And it's something that that we uh, that I know is is really difficult to navigate through. But tonight, I think that we'll be able to walk through this in a way, hopefully, that will be helpful to you, because it's very clear in God's word, and we believe that God's word is good and good for us. Um, this week, it was fascinating to me that that Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback, was. Um, interviewed on ESPN.com, and in that interview, he talked about his beliefs, and he said, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of, it, at the end of all of this? Now listen, there's no denying Aaron Rodgers' talent as a quarterback, but on this issue, theologically, he really dropped the ball. <laughs> Um, if you're a Packers fan, relax. Unless you're, <laughs> unless you're a Chiefs fan or a 49ers fan, all of our teams are in the same place this week. They're sitting on the couch. Um, now, he's not the best theologian. Now, I don't, somebody mentioned this to me this weekend that I don't know if we set up like a Venn diagram of Hall of Fame quarterbacks and great theologians exactly what the crossover would be. <laughs> It probably wouldn't be that great, but we have a tendency to turn to celebrity figures to shape our perspectives on politics, on faith, on, on the great truths of life, and it may not always be that wise. He talked about in the interview that his deepest influence is a spiritualist named Rob Bell. I say spiritualist because he was a pastor who abandoned biblical Christianity. 
but he captured something, a sentiment that we all feel and one that's popular today because there's nothing that makes us feel better than to be tolerant and, inclu and, and inclusive and compassionate, and it makes sense that we would even want to posture ourselves as more compassionate than God himself. And so today we continue our study, and we're going to go right into this thorny topic of God's wrath. If you're, if you're newer to Redemption Hill, you should know that if you're around for any amount of time, we, we don't have a tendency to avoid the hard topics. In fact, we kind of just go headfirst into them together, and um, because these are the things, the real things that we're concerned about, and we don't avoid them, and instead we say, okay, let's turn to God's word together, see what is clear there, and what we can cling to there, and then trust that God is good. And so last week, again, we saw Paul was eager to preach the gospel in this capital city. He was unashamed of the gospel, as all Christians ought to be. And today, we see that his eagerness was related to understanding the revelation of the rightful wrath of God and that we are without excuse. And so that's the big idea tonight. We are without excuse. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, this is what we read. So again, he's eager to preach the gospel for... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so... It begins with great clarity here that the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, the, the idea of God's righteous wrath is offensive to us in part because we love our sin. We love it. We cling to it. And, and to the point that even though sin is a disease that is destroying every one of us and eating away at our soul, we lift it to the level of becoming our identity and identifying with the things that we pursue. And so, and we love... We love it too much to see how destructive it can be. But the reality is that if sin is the disease that is destroying humanity, we have to ask the question, how unloving would it be for God not to hate sin? Rebecca Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, wrote, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. The final form of hate is indifference. And if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, Scripture teaches that every person is made in the image and likeness of God, that we reflect God's beauty and majesty, and that's what makes every one of us and every person on earth worthy of love and dignity and respect and honor. And so God hates sin the way that we hate cancer. 
that if cancer is ravaging somebody's body and we love that person, we're going to hate that disease and do what we can to kill it and remove it. The way that we hate alcoholism. If you've had a relative or somebody that you love that has struggled with addiction and alcoholism and you see how it destroys their life, to love them means you will hate the thing that is destroying them. It's the way that a good parent hates seeing the bad decisions that are damaging their child, or a good friend hates the depression or anxiety that cripples their friend out of love for the person. You see, if God didn't, had no wrath against sin, if he didn't hate sin, he couldn't be loving. John Stott, a theologian, said, the wrath of God then is almost totally different from human anger. It doesn't mean God loses his temper or flies into a rage or is ever malicious or spiteful or indictive. The, the alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. And so the impact of sin is shown in the actions of our lives and stretches into eternity. Jesus told a parable, you can go read it in Luke chapter 16. He told a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man treated, he talks about how poorly the rich man treated Lazarus, how he wouldn't even, the dogs were kinder to Lazarus in licking his wounds and trying to care for him than the rich man was. And he wasn't in hell, though, for his lack of generosity. It wasn't his stinginess that landed in there, it's, or, his, or his selfishness. Those were just symptoms of the greater disease within him. But it, what's amazing in the story is that his attitude toward Lazarus continued even in the afterlife, that there was a chasm that separated them, and Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham in paradise, and the rich man was in torment, and they couldn't go back and forth. But even there, he, he made demands of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come down here with some water because I'm thirsty, Lazarus, go and tell my family about this place so that they repent and don't land here. And that's where Abraham intervened and said, they won't listen even if someone is raised from the dead. Now, this tells us something. See, eternity isn't that God is gleeful in his wrath. It's not like he's enjoying where, when people end up in, in righteous judgment in the end. But in the rich man, there was no repentance. He wasn't sad to be there. There was only deeper arrogance. Jesus shows us who God is. If we want a picture of God, we look to Christ. That's the, the fullness of the revelation of God. And, and Jesus wept over the impact of sin. He wept at the death of his friend. He was heartbroken at seeing it played out. And so we have a tendency to imagine that hell is filled with people who are good and want a different end to the eternity. But as one theologian has said, hell is not filled with people who are deeply sorry for their sins. It's filled with people who for all of eternity still shake their fist in the face of of God Almighty, in an endless existence of corruption and evil and shame. And so it's not that it's filled with people crying out for mercy, and every evidence that we have is that the people will continue in self-justification, the ultimate in loneliness and existence, and will not and cannot bend their knee in true worship. One person has said it, that those who will not cry out to God and say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, that eventually God will say to them instead, Thy will be done. And so it's the result of a human choice to be separated from God. Well, what the text goes on to tell us tonight is, is that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, and then it goes on to say that we are all without excuse. Every one of us. 
And it gives us some reasons for that. The first one is that God's character is clearly revealed in creation. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. See, this, the word for in verse 19, is, that's an explanation. And so there's several of those in, this, in these verses for us, saying this is the reason we know this. Now, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, in a further explanation, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that they are without excuse. And so it's saying God's character is revealed. We can see it all around us. This is what theologians call general revelation. Special revelation is when God speaks or through his word or directly to somebody with great specifics. But general revelation is what we see of God's character in, just in the world around us. And you see there's two particular characteristics that Paul calls out here. His eternal power and his divine nature. And I think this is something that, that all of us have a sense of that we see something and experience something of the majesty of God seeing this world around us in mountains and oceans and telescopes that show us the galaxies. And then in the microscopic, when we look at the functions of a single cell, it's incredible to see the beauty of the complexity of this place. Last year, our family got to go to the Grand Canyon um, in February, and we got to see Alyssa's grandmother, so my kids got to see their great-grandmother, um, we went to the Grand Canyon, and then we were planning on enjoying the warm weather of Arizona and got caught in a once-in-a-hundred-year snowstorm that stretched. We got caught. We were stuck in Sedona in feet of snow. Um, so it was a unique experience of Arizona. It's the only time I've ever been there in my life. And so even Simon, at one point when we came back, said, Simon's our, our, he was nine at the time, not even now a 10-year-old boy, and he was like, yeah, Arizona is a weird desert because it snows a lot there. We were like, well, <laughs> um, maybe. <laughs> but, and so we, we were up at the Grand Canyon, and I had never seen it before. I'd never, I'd never been to Arizona, so I guess it becomes self-apparent that I hadn't been to the Grand Canyon. But I had never seen it before, but I'd seen pictures. And so I can remember thinking, like, I probably, I, I know what this is going to be like. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. We'll see it. And, and, and then you step up to the rim of the Grand Canyon, and I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. I literally started taking off my clothes. Like, I took off my shirt and was, was shirtless at the Grand Canyon, and my kids were like, what is happening? But I was, <laughs> but I was so overwhelmed by the majesty of the place. I was just getting, trying to get closer to nature in the 20-degree weather. And <laughs> a bunch of tourists came around the corner with cameras. It was a scene. <laughs> but but the, it just overwhelming to see the beauty and the majesty and the expanse of that place. And we see something of the character of God and the power of God there. But we see it also in the intimacy and the personality of God that the miracle of life as we celebrate another baby born into Redemption Hill tonight. And, and you see children develop and, and we enjoy. I mean, think about the pleasures that God has given us in food and drink that he didn't have to create us with that. And I, I refuse to believe that that's just a dopamine hit. Like that it's, it can be, I know that there are chemical things that happen in our brains, but, but God gave us an appreciation of beauty that's beyond just that. The beauty of a sunset or the gift of laughter that can actually lift our hearts and the, there are health benefits to it. 
the universality of, of human conscience, that every culture everywhere has a sense that there is right and wrong and there are morals, that, that creation itself cries out the character of God. And this is what Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day or pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. John Calvin said, by saying God made, made it manifest or made it, makes himself show up in creation, he means that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world, that eyes were given to him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led to the author himself. And so we're without excuse because God's character is shown to us in creation. The second thing we see in the text tonight is that we're without excuse because we suppress truth by nature and by choice. And language of suppress here is like trying to keep something secret or keep something like if you have a container, you're trying to keep it closed and keep it shut so that people don't know what's inside. And so here is saying they, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which this language itself is showing the contrast between us and God, that the, the righteousness of God is being, is being revealed and the unrighteousness of humanity is, is bringing on God's wrath for us. Why? Because we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. And this is a great irony here because I think one of the most popular critiques I hear of Christianity is that the Christian ethic is too repressive for people. Like we, I, you know, that it's repressive to not let out who I truly am. And, but that belief claim, and that claim itself misunderstands true Christianity and itself suppresses the truth that is repressive in keeping people from the one place where we can find healing and hope and so there's something in this suppressing of truth that it's essentially cosmic treason against a holy God. I'm never surprised theologically when Christianity is the only belief system that's unwelcome in society and public life because we are bent by nature to reject truth. And we show that. We show that in the way we, ways we grow up. Mark Twain said this. He said, when I was 10, I thought my parents knew everything. When I became 20, I was convinced they knew nothing. And then at 30, I realized I was right when I was 10. <laughs> well, we all go through this, where we reject those things. Some of us are naturally bent towards skepticism, and so maybe that's more, you know, you can relate to that. I can relate to that, that when I hear something, my first response is rarely, oh, that's amazing. Usually I'm like, really? Are you sure? I'm a skeptic about things, and why? Because I... I don't trust, and I want to know what the real truth is, and, and, and so I want to dig into that. Now, and, and here's the reality, too, that none of us is as self-aware as we think. We don't even see the truth in ourselves. Think about just the way that our culture approaches aging. We do everything we can to hide the fact that it's happening, that we'll dye our hair and you think, you know, if I'm just physically fit enough, then I'm never going to get older. And we, we reject the idea that we age and, 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 and that process happens and it's good. And if, this is the humbling thing about, about being married and having kids, that I think many of you who are unmarried, I can remember before Alyssa and I got married, which we've been married since we were basically children, so that was a while ago. But I can remember before I got married thinking that marriage is a dreamy state of self-fulfillment where another person will completely perfect and complete me and support me unquestioningly. 
being married means that you will have somebody in your life who will study everything you do and everything about you and then find ways to point out what they're learning. <laughs> and having kids makes it worse because you'll see your kids do things and be like, why are they doing that? And realize, oh no, that's me. They learned that from me. They look like me and they're acting like me and is that who I am? And so there, we, we don't even understand the truth about ourselves and so it shouldn't be surprising to us to know as finite beings there are times when we suppress the truth. And so that's part of the reason that God's wrath is being revealed, that it's God's character has been revealed in creation and we suppress the truth by nature and by choice. And third, our worship shapes us, whether toward God or toward idols. That God's wrath is being revealed and it shows up in our unwillingness to worship him. Do you, do you see that? That it says that, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is saying that, that we have a worship problem that is driving everything else. And it shows up in our unwillingness or inability to worship God and to honor him. And you see this in a, in a lack of gratitude. Because we don't understand that everything good that we have is from God. And so we don't turn to him in gratitude and in thanksgiving. One of the most pervasive themes in all of scripture is idolatry. And I, I think this can be hard for us to relate to sometimes because in modern life, we have a tendency to think that the ancients were dumb and superstitious and they bowed down to statues and had household statues and temples with statues and we're so, much far, we're so far past that. And so idolatry isn't an issue for us. And the reality is that it's an issue for every one of us. Luther, the great reformer, said that anything that, our, that the heart alone makes both God and idol, so anything our heart clings to, it's, it's the, anything that grabs our affections and is the ultimate in our lives, if we could just get this thing or be with this person or achieve this status or have this amount of wealth or this amount of power, if we could just have that, then everything in our lives would be fine. But we know the lie of that because every time we've achieved those things or gained those things in our lives, it's come up empty in the end. But still we continue to go forward with it. And think about this. If you were to shape God, what would he look like? What would God be like? The ultimate cheerleader that you can do no wrong and he just supports whatever the desires of your heart might be regardless of how self-destructive they are? Would he be like, like an old grandpa with a scotch and a cigar saying, hey, great job, just go out there and go get him. I think the most popular imagery of God, I see people, whether or not they realize that this is what they're representing, is that God is kind of a passive, hand-wringing, apologetic God who can't, who can't make us angry. You know, he can't, he's not going to be angry at us at any point, and and he's, because if he ever shows anger, then it, we're scared it wouldn't be loving. And most of us want a God who will bring the wicked to justice and protect the innocent and weak and hold bad people to account. We want those things to be true of God, but we would like to be the ones who decide who the wicked people are. 
And this isn't new or modern. That's part of what we get wrong. I mean, one commentator pointed out that since the time of the Greek philosophers, the idea that God would inflict wrath on people was rejected as incompatible with enlightened understanding of deity. And so in the, in the time that Paul was writing these things, in the, the world that the church and the gospel burst into in the first century, that was the belief system. The idea of God being a God that had anger and wrath was totally incompatible with the beliefs of the day, just like now. And so I will say this today. If the idea of a God who has anger or wrath makes you uncomfortable, if that's something that, that stings a little, then, then I actually have hope that maybe you're ready to hear just how good he is. That you might just be ready to see the one true God as who he is, the, one, the God who is really there. Because it may mean that the dulled heart of idolatry is being peeled away that, that, it's, that your eyes are being opened, your ears are being unclogged. In Psalm 115 talks about idolatry and says, the idols are, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk. And they don't, don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. And so this idea of idolatry is something that extends into Isaiah. We see that in Isaiah's calling in Isaiah 6, that God calls Isaiah to go forward for him. And he says, go and proclaim my word. But he, t- he warns Isaiah, hey, the people are going to hear what you're saying, but they will not have ears to hear or eyes to see or perceive because their hearts have become dull and calloused. When Jesus was asked why he preached in parables, and he taught in parables, I think most of us think, well, Jesus was just really good at illustrations and was trying to connect with his hearers. But when he gets asked why he spoke in parables, he said, because this generation's heart has become calloused, and if I didn't speak in parables, then otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And so he was reflecting, this, these people are too far gone in the idolatry of their hearts, and God has turned them over to it. And it's not just scripture that recognizes this. The author, brilliant author, David Foster Wallace recognized this in a commencement address he gave, and he's, he's now gone. He has passed away, and he was not a Christian, but he was able to see all this. Why? Because creation itself shows us these things, and, and David Foster Wallace said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The so-called real world hums merrily along in a pool of fear anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. And this is the ultimate in idolatry. It's the de-godding of God. And ultimately, yes, it's pushing our affections into his place, but at the core of all of that is putting us in God's place. This is what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent came to Eve and said, said, did God really say that you shouldn't touch any of the trees in the garden? You know, don't, don't you think that God is limiting you and holding back from you? 
and keeping from you the things that are best for you. And those whispers have continued in the human soul ever since. So we're without excuse. Our worship shapes us. And fourth, God's judgment is in releasing us to our own desires. We get this backward all the time. That we, we fixate on whether our morality earns us hell. And so we imagine coming to the pearly gates and meeting St. Peter and having a scale in front of us of good and bad in our lives and, and whether, whether that scale balances out, then that's where we're going to end up. And it, I think that's helpful for us because if there's a moral scale, then every one of us can always point to people who are worse than us, right? Most of us don't think of a moral scale and, and think about ourselves and think, imagine this scenario and go, oh gosh, I'm such a terrible person. And if you do, then praise God for that because you're ready to hear the gospel. But I think more often we're like, well, I think it kind of tips in my favor because like, we point out, like, I'm not Hitler, like that, if that's where you go, your bar is not very high. But when we think about God's judgment, we're only thinking in those terms, and that's where you get Aaron Rodgers' concern. Like, how can we just think about hell? But, but the way that God's judgment shows up in our lives isn't how we often think of it. And we have a tendency to think, as far as life now, if God's judgment comes, or blessing comes into our life now, what does it look like to be blessed? I think usually... For me, when I get what I want, blessing means comfort. It means success. It means ease. It means when things are going the way that I think they ought to go, that's God's blessing for me. And when things are not, that's when I'm like, God, what are you doing here? Don't you see the things I've done? That's moralism. That's not the gospel. You notice that this is the present tense all the way along. The ESV is God's wrath is revealed. I think there it could just as well be translated God's wrath is being because the present tense in the Greek is an ongoing thing. It's not like God's wrath is revealed as if it happened once. No, it's, it's ongoing being revealed in the lives of human beings. It isn't just a future event. It is present now. Why? Well, the Bible is consistent from start to finish that the judgment of God is often giving us exactly what we want and turning our hearts over so that our idolatry becomes our identity. And that frames the next four chapters of Romans. So this is I mentioned this, I think, last week, but, but you need to hear this, that, that Romans and the Apostle Paul here is going to be an equal opportunity offender for every one of us. That over the next few weeks, what we see is in these chapters of Romans that it builds this case, but, but it builds this case that God's judgment is turning the irreligious over to the desires and whims of their hearts to, to do whatever they want, saying, go for it, but also to the religious, and, and it extends then to the whole human race. And so over the next two weeks, what we'll see is that, that our own depravity shows up in a, in a twisted view of sex, in, a twisted view, in twisted minds, and in twisted religion. And that, that we, we leverage all these good gifts of God in order, it, it really, to, to, as the ultimate, and not to glorify him, but to our own destruction. And then you get to Romans chapter 3, and you read, are the Jews any better off than the Greeks? No, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So he's saying ethnicity and your religious background isn't going to save you. No one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. 
Later on in Romans 3.23, he says, There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one that's righteous, not one. And so if we actually read this text, and if you stick with us, so if, we, if you get offended by one section or another in the next few weeks, I, I, I beg you, stay with us and keep coming back because there'll be other weeks that might be a little less stingy for you. But in that sting, that may be the cut in the surgical scalp of the Spirit of God that's exactly what you need to have the cancer of sin removed so that you can experience real healing in your life. Every single one of us is going to be stung. Every one of us will be cut deeply in the coming weeks. And, and, and every one of us, even in this passage today, it's the umbrella for it all, saying the, the wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness of men. And every one of us is hit by that. But there's also good news. And so where's the hope in all of this? Where's the hope with this deadly disease of sin? Well, remember why Paul's eager to get to Rome. That's the foundation for us. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel, the good news to you who are in Rome. Why? Well, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Why, are you, why Paul, are you unashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17, why is it the power of God for salvation? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and the righteous will live by faith. And so Paul's giving the answer of the hope we have in the midst of the wrath of God being revealed is that God has come and taken that for us, and that by turning to Jesus in faith and repentance, we can be healed and restored. Restored. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus was healing people. His public ministry was beginning. He was calling disciples, and he called someone to be his disciple, a man named Levi. Levi was a tax collector. If you don't know the cultural context of the time, tax collectors were the worst of the worst of the worst in Israel at the time. They were working for Rome and taxing the people, taxing their own people, working for in, in, in an oppressive government that had invaded, and they were crooked. They would steal from people, they would, they would charge whatever they wanted and then just skim off the top and give what Rome required. And Jesus called this guy Levi to be his follower. And then Levi invited him over for a party with all of his friends. In Luke 5, it just tells us that it was a group of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus, as this, new, as this teacher whose public ministry was beginning, he goes in and he... And he went to the party with them, and it was eating and drinking with them. Now, for us, maybe that guilt by association thing doesn't strike as deeply, but for the Jewish people at the time, especially table fellowship with somebody, you could risk uncleanness by that. And so, so they came to Jesus and said, hey, uh, you've got a different approach to this than your cousin John, the baptizer. We'll call him John the baptizer so we don't offend the Presbyterians in the room. He's not a Baptist, baptizer. Your cousin John, his followers, they all fast. And, and you, have you noticed that you're not fasting, Jesus? You're eating and drinking, and do you know who these people are? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. I have not come, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is good news, because the more convinced you are of your own righteousness today, the less of a chance that you'll realize your need for a Savior. And this is especially goes for those of you that have grown up around the church, because we can theologize our way out of believing that we need a Savior at all. 
Because we think if we know the right things and believe the right things and act the right way, at least outwardly, so that people don't think weird things about us, then we've got it settled. And we don't realize that we've completely undercut the gospel. No, the, the reality is that the beauty of what Scripture shows us is the more that you aware that you are of your own brokenness, of your own bent nature, of your own wicked heart, of your own twisted choices, then the more likely it is that you can actually hear the good news that Jesus has for you. That's why Paul was so eager to proclaim the gospel in Rome. He's not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes because in it, in the gospel, the unrighteousness of humanity meets the righteousness of God, but we are, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. In 1 John, the apostle John talked about this. He said, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He says, this is how it shows up. How do you, when we believe that God is fully loving, how do we see God's love? Is it that he ignores sin and that he has no anger and no wrath? No, he says this is how we see God's love, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a, is a big theological word, but, but it means that the wrath of God is removed from us. That in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's righteous wrath against the disease of sin that is consuming those who bear his image and likeness has been absorbed as God himself paid the price for us through Christ's death on the cross. And what that means is that that righteous wrath of God was taken by Jesus so that in faith we might be freed and, be, and then live in the fullness of the righteousness of God. This is what it builds toward in Romans, Romans 3 to 4. I mean, you may have, Romans is 16 chapters long. And so if you heard me describe the first four chapters, you were like, I don't know about this. You need to hear that, yes, it shows us that none of us is righteous. And he spends four chapters doing that. And then we're going to get to chapter 5. And there we read this, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so therefore, we have been now made righteous, justified by his blood. How much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if, what, if we were enemies of God, and while we were enemies, he rec we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so the beauty of the gospel is not that God is, a, is, is weak and not concerned with sin. It's that he is so concerned with the disease of sin in us that he took the measures to bring us back to him. And all we are called to do is turn in faith. And so if we understand that, that changes everything. We're, we're freed from, from the oppressive darkness of our own hearts and this world and free to see who God is and to worship and honor him, free to see what God has done and to be thankful to him. And it changes our perspective. Think about how that'll change the way that you pray. Instead of just coming to God with the laundry list of the things we want, saying, Father, why don't you give me what I deserve? It changes everything so that we can turn and say, Father, thank you for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for accepting me fully through Jesus Christ so that I don't have to keep trying to prove myself and my standing. Do you understand that? 
that the good news of the gospel is that God sees you and he knows you and he accepts you and he is going to work in your life to free you. Not just to do whatever you want, but free you into actual freedom of reflecting his glory and beauty and majesty more clearly as he reshapes you in the image and likeness of Christ. And so tonight, the challenge for every one of us is look around you. We can see something of who God is everywhere we go. And that's true whether we're seeing the mountains or the sea or looking through a microscope into cells. It's true if as we're in a city. Cities are filled with people, and people bear the image and likeness of God, which means there is more of God's image and likeness in cities than anywhere else. And we see the depth of human depravity more than anywhere else. I believe that in some of you today, your conscience is crying out. You're afraid because you think your life will change, and you're right, because Jesus changes everything. But if you're sick today, if you ignore the symptoms and stubbornly push ahead, it's going to catch up with you. It's a little fresh for me. I had the injury to my ankle that I had surgery for was 20 years ago. (laughs) I have not taken a step without pain in 20 years. There was a bone a centimeter and a half around that was right underneath my Achilles that apparently I was born with that caused massive pressure and caused problems throughout the joint. And I had to have a doctor go in and cut that thing out in order to, and, and right now it's not very fun. But the hope is that that surgery will bring hope and healing in the end. It hurts, surgery hurts, but it'll be worth it. If sin is the cancer that scripture decides, it calls it out to be, then it will hurt to have that addressed in your life. It's not going to be pleasant in the middle of it, but it's worth it. We're told that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and divides splitting joint and marrow, soul and spirit, that, that it will expose the desires of our hearts. But if the desires of your heart are exposed, then that's when the cancer can be cut out and you can be brought toward healing by faith alone in Christ alone. And we're promised that all who turn to Jesus in faith today can, can go in peace and hear the words of the great physician who came not to heal the righteous, but the sick, the sinners, who, and called them to repentance, that you can hear him say, your faith has made you whole. Now, last week, we, in, we called the church and invited anyone who's newer to Redemption Hill to join us in this, so we still have them available this week. Um, these are prayer cards that are at each of the communion stations. On one side, it has Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And on the other side, it's blank. We challenge those of you who are part of Redemption Hill, if you haven't yet, please pick one of these up and write someone's name down who you are gonna pray for and commit to speak the beauty of the gospel to between now and Easter. We invite you, if you're, if you're newer to Redemption Hill, join us in this. We Already this week, I've been amazed to hear from people in our church that are seeing God present opportunities that simply because people have prayed and looked for the opportunities, and it's amazing to me. And so we're going to continue in this with great hope. And, and, if you're, and for those of you who are here tonight that aren't walking with Jesus, 
you need to hear that there's hope. That you, I've got to believe that you know that things aren't right. When we look at the world around us, you know that things aren't like they ought to be. That when you look at your own life, you know that things aren't as they ought to be. Don't sit passively in that. Turn to the place where you can find healing today. It, it's going to hurt, and it's not easy. Jesus' call is to take up a cross to follow him. And so there's, there's a death that you die every day in that walk. But it's the only way we find hope and life. Let's pray. Um, Father, your word is so clear and so good. Help us not, we pray that you tonight by your spirit would block out the whispers of our enemy who would, who would turn us away from what you have for us and that instead that you would, you would direct us to have greater faith and trust in who you are and what you have for us. Father, thank you that you've made a way for us through Christ that, that we can turn and experience the fullness of your righteousness. And so would you forgive us Forgive us for the way that our hearts chase after other things, for the idolatry we pursue. For, forgive us for suppressing the truth. Forgive us for ignoring the beauty of your majesty that's revealed even in creation. And we thank you that you've given us hope for healing and life and righteousness and peace through Christ. So we pray that as we sing and worship and share the Lord's Supper tonight, that you would bring peace to our hearts, give us the confidence to follow you in faith. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.